0: Mark chapter six, beginning in verse one. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miracle, miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When, the disciples, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And though this text has much to say, God, I believe that you have a word for your people in this place today. God, I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would lead us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak. God, that you would speak through the text, that you would speak to our hearts, God, and that you would remind us of what, God, you have done so that we could be accepted, and approved so that we could belong with you. God, lead this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in a recent study, a recent survey of phobias, it was found that the fear most commonly shared in America, more than spiders, more than snakes or ghosts or needles or the zombie apocalypse The thing that most Americans share, the things that most Americans fear is actually public speaking. Public speaking is the number one phobia in America. And so sheer statistics would say that some of you are terrified of public speaking. Many of you would agree. Now, personally, I have this crazy fear. Every time I get up in front of you all that I am going to pass out. I have never passed out in my life. There is no reason for me to possibly think that it would happen. But I am convinced that someday I'm just going to hit the deck mid-sermon. And it like terrifies me. And every time i like getting weak in the knees and all that stuff. The fear of public speaking is a real thing. Public speaking can be a very scary thing. But Why? Why is it so terrifying? Well, see, words are an expression of our hearts. Jesus said that out of the the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so to share thoughts and feelings and emotions and opinions so publicly is not only opening ourselves up to the opportunity for people to disagree with what we think, but to disagree with who we are to disagree with our essence, to disagree with us at a heart level. You see, at its core, the fear of public speaking stems from a fear of rejection. And we will do just about anything to avoid the feeling of rejection. Rejection is painful. You see, we long to be accepted we long to be approved of, to be validated. We long to know and believe and have the assurance that we matter to something, that we matter to this world, that we're contributing something good to the world. We long to be accepted and rejection feels like an interference with our value and our worth and our desires and, 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 and everything that we are. But Jesus is no stranger to rejection. In Mark's gospel so far, we've seen him face criticisms and accusations from the Pharisees of blasphemy. We have seen his family desire to remove him from the public eye because they believed that he was out of his mind. But in our text today, those criticisms, those concerns, that disbelief, all comes to a head when he is rejected by those who know him best. You see, those that knew Jesus best, though they had heard his teaching and were aware of his wisdom, though they had heard of the miracles, they could not accept that this man with whom they were so familiar could be the Savior of Israel. See, in part, Jesus is rejected by those in his hometown because of their familiarity with him. See, Jesus was actually, he was too ordinary to them to be special. Despite his teaching, he wasn't trained. He wasn't a scribe. He wasn't a Pharisee. His dad wasn't a rabbi. What right, Jesus, do you have to teach us? you know better than us. He wasn't of noble birth. He didn't come from a wealthy or powerful family. He was a carpenter. Right now, to, to be a carpenter was not an, an ignoble task. The Jewish people looked up, they, they respected those who worked with their hands. They're not saying you're just a common laborer. They're not saying that, that you're nothing. They're saying you're just like the rest of us. You're nothing special. But worst of all, Jesus was the son of Mary. Now, this might sound innocuous, but it's not. This is an absolute slam. They are dissing Jesus. A man was known by his father's name, even if his father was dead. By calling Jesus Mary's son, they are hearkening back to the rumors that they have heard of his illegitimacy. See, Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus. And so they had heard of the rumors. They had heard of her promiscuity. They had heard the rumors and maybe even the preposterous claim that she was a virgin when he was born. By calling him the son of Mary, they're calling him illegitimate. And so through his ministry... The people who encountered Jesus would continue to ask, what kind of man is this? What kind of man has this authority? What kind of man forgives sins? What kind of man can calm the wind and the waves? What kind of man is this? But in Nazareth, they knew exactly the kind of man Jesus was. And they could not wrap their minds around the fact that the son of Mary was the son of God. It's been said that familiarity breeds contempt. Some of the most hostile critics to Christianity in our culture are those who once identified as Christians. They have this familiarity with Jesus. They have heard his teaching. They have heard of his power. Maybe they even know people who claim to have experienced miraculous things, but they never put their faith in him. And because they never put their faith in him, they don't experience his presence and his power for themselves. They might be doing all the right things, They might be in all the right places on Sunday mornings and singing all the right songs and affirming all of the right intellectual propositions. They might be doing all the right things, but they have not actually entrusted themselves to him. And so, when the teachings of Jesus begin to conflict with the values in our culture, or the identity of Jesus and his divine claim on our lives begins to conflict with our desire for autonomy, we have a choice to make. You have a choice to make to either risk being rejected by the world or to reject Jesus. See, the people in Nazareth knew him. They'd grown up with him. They had seen their children play with him as a child. And they knew that he was just like anybody else. And so they rejected him. And so because of their lack of faith, they didn't experience his power. And so for you and I, in this place today, we have to be very careful. We have to be aware of familiarity with Jesus apart from intimacy with Jesus. Familiarity apart from faith. So you can know everything there is to know about the chair that you're sitting in right now. You can know the make, the model, the serial number, the materials, all of that stuff. You can know that, but until you actually sit down, you're still standing on your own. In the same way, you can know everything there is to know about Jesus. You can cite chapter and verse. You can memorize scripture. You can know all of the things that have ever been said about Jesus through, through the, the, the history of Christendom. But until you actually put your faith in him, you will stand before God on your own. Until you actually put your faith in him, you are still Standing Without faith, we can't experience the power of Jesus. Without faith, we can't experience his presence and his power. We can't experience the healing that he longs to bring. He does not force himself on anyone. Jesus is a king, but he's not a tyrant. He wants you to experience his power. He wants you to experience his love. He wants you to experience his presence not only to know that he is good, but to taste and see, as the scriptures say, that the Lord is good. The fact is, many of us waffle between familiarity and faith. In certain moments of our lives, we know intellectually, we have this familiarity with Jesus. I know about Jesus, but we're not putting our trust in him. And at times, we find ourselves believing and trusting in ways that we didn't know possible, And we go back and forth and we find ourselves waffling, but we need to pursue a persistent trust and and not just a familiarity, but a faith and intimacy with Jesus. Many of us, though familiar with Jesus, like the Nazarenes, will possibly accept him as the son of man, but will reject him as the son of God. Now, why in the world would Mark include so many examples of rejection in what he calls the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? If Mark wants people to accept Jesus. If Mark wants people to accept his gospel, if Mark wants people to believe, wouldn't he just include stories of people after person, after person accepting Jesus and experiencing his power? Wouldn't he want to hide the examples of those who knew Jesus, who were rejecting him? The scene in Nazareth is actually scandalizing. Why does Mark spend so much time painting these pictures of rejection? You see, Mark... He's a smart guy. And he knows that all of us, everyone who chooses to follow Jesus, is going to experience rejection. Every single person who follows Jesus will experience rejection at some point because of Jesus. Jesus said a servant is not greater than his master. If he was rejected, then so will we be. And so in our text, we see not only that there is pain in rejection, we see not only just Jesus being rejected, but we are given preparation for rejection. See, among the instructions for the missionary journeys the disciples are about to embark on, Jesus prepares them for, uh, to, to, to he not only gives them what to bring and, and what not to bring, he prepares them for rejection. He says to travel light and so depend on God for provision. He says that if someone is to welcome you into their home, stay in that home. Don't, don't leave that home, but stay in that home. You see, there was a temptation and, uh, and, and a history of the Pharisees and other itinerant preachers during that time. They would trade up. They would go into a community. They would receive hospitality. But once someone with a greater home, once someone with a better home, once someone with more luxury and more money and better food offered them their home, they would trade up and they would go into a more luxurious Home. Jesus says, don't do that. Honor the hospitality shown to you. As you are accepted, accept them. Don't scorn their hospitality by claiming it's not as good as another's. Oh yeah. And when you encounter those who don't receive you and will not listen to you, you are to shake the dust from your feet. See, there was an ancient Jewish tradition that when Jewish people traveled through a non-Jewish territory, through a Gentile territory, when they, trans, when they traveled out of that territory and back into the promised land, they were to shake the dust from their feet and their clothing as a testimony that even the dirt from your land will not stick to us. That we are, we are a, a purified people. We are a sanctified people. God has called us. And so not even the dirt from your land will stick to our clothing, But Jesus is telling them that when they leave a Jewish territory... If a Jewish territory doesn't receive them, if a Jewish territory doesn't believe or receive the testimony of Jesus, they are to shake the dust from their feet as they leave there as a testimony against them. They are regarded as unclean in the same way that the Gentile peoples were unclean and separated from God. So no longer was somebody's heritage the qualifying factor for access to the kingdom of God. The true test over belonging to God was whether or Not they received Jesus, and so when they were rejected, they were to shake the dust from their feet. So Jesus gives them this preparation for rejection. I think it's really interesting that the very last thing that Jesus teaches them before sending them out on their own missionary journeys, not just in his words. But in his actions in Nazareth, the last thing the disciples needed to learn was how to be rejected. You see, they had been following Jesus and seen everything. They had heard him teach countless times. They probably memorized many of his messages and they watched him heal and cast out demons. And now Jesus was giving them the authority to do the same. They had seen him respond to the criticism of the Pharisees, but here he teaches them how to deal with rejection. Jesus warns them that there will be people who do not accept them. How much do we need to learn that lesson as the people of God today? There will be people in this world who refuse to accept you. And this is one of the most difficult lessons for the people of God to learn. If you are following Jesus, then like Jesus, you will suffer rejection. It's a fact. The world hated him. How much more will they hate you? The world killed him. How much more will the world reject Now, when we hear about the rejection that we will encounter as believers, we can make two errors. The first one is to cower from the opportunities to share about Jesus for fear of that rejection. We know if I share, I'll be rejected. I don't want to be rejected. We even justify it by saying like, I'll share with them someday when they've already approved of me as an individual. I do this all the time. People ask, what do you do? And I think of every reason to not say I'm a pastor because they already judge me. They already know I got you figured out, right? So can I say that I work for a nonprofit organization or I'm a teacher uh, or something like that? No, you know, I can't, I can't do that. Right. But so, so we, we, we make excuses to, to not be, I'm going to share with Jesus with them later. Once they finally love me as a friend, once they know that I'm like a good guy and I'm not like those other people that they've rejected, then I'll tell them about Jesus. We justify this. We do this all the time. We cower from the opportunity to share about Jesus for fear of rejection. And this is especially true when sharing with people that mean the most to us. Because the greater the love, the greater the relationship, the more pain there is in rejection. The second mistake that we can make is because of this assurance of rejection, we use it as an excuse to be jerks. And to be insensitive, to lack compassion in our proclamation of the gospel. The gospel is offensive. But if we are not loving, if we are not compassionate in our presentations of Jesus, then it is not the gospel that is offensive. It's you. You're offensive. And we go, you know, just persecution. for following Jesus. No, you're just mean. We can't use it as an excuse to just like, "Eh, you know, It's because you don't love Jesus, and just be mean about it. Now, some people will point to the harsh words that Jesus has for the Pharisees, right? And they'll say Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. Jesus had harsh words for people. Jesus was kind of like—I mean, some of the stuff he said was kind of mean. But it's true. He reserves his strongest words for the religious leaders who are leading people astray. So, if I, one of your pastors, begins living in hypocrisy and abusing the church for my own gain, then you have every right to rebuke me the way Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. You have my permission. Hold me accountable to this. If I start living in hypocrisy and like embezzling from the church and stuff like that, please rebuke me. Jesus reserves strong words for the Pharisees. But for those who didn't know better, he, he lays out a banquet table for them. He, he's, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They loved him because he was gracious. They loved him because he was kind. They loved him because he was gentle. They loved him because he loved them. And still, even with the most compassionate proclamation, people will still reject those who are following Jesus. And this is hard because we want to believe that if God is real and if God has called us to share the good news of Jesus, then everyone will believe it. Right, God wants everyone to be saved. And so if God is real, he's called me to this, then I'm going to share, then they're going to accept me. They're going to accept God and they're going to accept me and all this stuff. But remember, we've been talking about this church over the last several weeks That that the kingdom of this world has been invaded by the kingdom of God. The kingdom of this world loves darkness. And the kingdom of God is bringing light. So we shouldn't be surprised when the kingdom of this world hides in the shadows and tries to keep us out. Throughout the scriptures, the prophets were rejected for speaking the word of God because the people didn't want to repent. Jesus was rejected for teaching about the kingdom of God that had come in him despite the authority and the power that was at work in him. And the disciples will be rejected for the message of repentance despite the authority and the power of Jesus that he has delegated to them, The only way we can accept this, the only way we can accept this and move forward without fear of rejection, cowering from proclaiming the gospel or without uh, uh, being insensitive in our proclamation of the gospel in every opportunity is to not only embrace the rejection that we will receive, but to rest in the approval of God. See, this is why Mark flashes back to the arrest and death of John the Baptist. It's a case study in rejection and an example of the power of approval. The stories of all that Jesus and his disciples were doing reaches King Herod. And when he hears it, he has a a, a reaction from his guilty conscience. See, he remembers what he has done to John. He remembers what he did to John. And so he he believes that John the Baptist, who he has beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Now, Mark uh, told us back in chapter one, verse 14, that John was arrested, but he never got into the details. And so here he tells the story. See, King Herod had married his brother's wife, Herodias. I don't know why people back in the day didn't have creative names. Herod married Herodias. It's just weird. So Herod marries his brother, Philip's wife, Herodias. And John the Baptist is not about it. So John calls him out. And for this reason, Herodias hated John and wanted him dead. But Herod feared and respected John because he believed that he was a prophet. He believed that he was holy and righteous and didn't want anything any harm to come to him. So rather than kill him, he just puts him away, shuts him up in prison so that he can go and listen to him when he wants to listen to him, but he doesn't have to actually do anything that he says. And so one day he throws a party for himself on his birthday and in invites all of the most important people in his kingdom. And this party gets out of hand. This is a full-on Greco-Roman rager. Okay. Everyone's drinking. It gets a little freaky when his niece slash stepdaughter comes in and dances for them, whose, whose mom is not in the room. She has to leave to go to, it's weird. Right. And so, so pleased Herod says up to half of my kingdom, I will give you, I'll give you anything you ask. And so she goes to her mom and goes, what should I ask for? And Herodias goes, I know exactly what you should ask for because I know Herod and I know that he's going to want to impress everyone in that room. I know that he wants their approval. And so he'll do anything that you ask. He will. So go and ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so the girl goes back in and she says, I want the head of John the Baptist. And Herod is faced with a choice to do what he knows is right and rescue John or to keep him safe as he had been doing, albeit in a self-serving manner. He has the choice to, 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 Uh, pursue the approval of his powerful guests or to pursue the approval of God. He has to choose between the approval of man and the approval of God. And he chooses his guests and he has John executed. This is the power that the desire for approval has over you. This is the desire, this is the power that the desire for approval has over us. In seeking the approval of the world, you will be conformed to this world. And in seeking the approval of God, though rejected by the world, you will be conformed to the character of God. So many people try to live with one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world. We keep Jesus locked up in a jail cell like Herod had John the Baptist. And we come to him and we say, Jesus, I love to listen to you when you have nice things to say to me. But we never let him challenge us. We never let him change us. We say, yes, I know that God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. But the minute God tells you that his wonderful plan for your life is your sanctification and holiness, you're like, "Eh, maybe later. And we try to live with one foot in and one foot out. This is the power that the search for approval has over us. But someday push will come to shove and we will all need to make a decision to either pursue the approval that comes from the world and reject God or rest in the approval of God and be rejected by the world. Mark is not interested in sugarcoating anything. He's telling it like it is. The disciples of Jesus will experience rejection, but we can receive it boldly and courageously because we have the only approval that matters. We have the only approval that matters. You see, the reason that that this story of John the Baptist is a part of this larger text is not just a flashback to describe the rejection that followers of Jesus will experience. It's also a foreshadowing of the ultimate rejection that Jesus will experience. See, not only rejected in Nazareth, but Jesus would be rejected in Jerusalem, formally rejected by those he came to save in the city where he should have been made king and he was nailed to a cross, but his death doesn't only finalize and and formalize his own rejection. It's also a a proof of the approval that we have in him. See, this was the length that Jesus was willing to go to show the world God's desire for intimacy with us, not just familiarity, but intimacy. God doesn't just know about you, but he knows you. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows you and desires not just familiarity, but desires intimacy with us. This is the length that Jesus was willing to go to remove the stain of sin and shame from us. He didn't just shake the dust from his feet when he left this world, but he received all the dirt, all the filth, all the sin, and shame in himself and suffered the penalty for it. And like John, Jesus was laid in a tomb. But unlike John, Jesus was actually raised from the dead. Herod feared that John had come from the dead, but Jesus himself is raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit. And he gives us the Holy Spirit who like John the Baptist convicts us of our sin in the same way that John went to Herod and said, bro this is not right the holy spirit comes to us and says this thing that you're involved in it's not good it's not good it's not right and so the holy spirit convicts of us of sin but the holy spirit is also the one that empowers repentance he doesn't just rub our nose in it and leaves us there he says this is wrong get it Yes, I get it. Now will you let me help you get you out of it? And the Holy Spirit gives us power for repentance so that we're not conformed to the world, but we're transformed into the image of Christ. And it's this same Holy Spirit that assures us that we are not children of the world. We're not just the sons of our parents, but we are children of God. Jesus was not just the son of Mary. He was the son of God. And the Holy Spirit cries out, in us. Abba, Father, declaring, confirming that we don't just, uh, we're not just known by God, but we belong with God, that we are children of God, and that our Father's face shines upon us, that He delights in us. We have all the approval we will ever need in Christ. You have all the approval that you will ever need, not because you're so great, but because He is great. And when we rest in this approval, when we rest in the approval that we have of God, the need for the world's approval fades away. It becomes less desirable. It becomes something that we don't need anymore because we already have what we need. It doesn't mean that rejection won't hurt but it means that we will have the comfort of God, the presence of God and the power of God with us as we suffer it, knowing that anything, any rejection that we experience, he experienced it first. He is the forerunner. He went before us. He prepared the way. And though we will suffer rejection and though it may be painful, we already have all of the approval that we will ever need. The reason that we still struggle The reason that you still struggle to find your approval from people in the world is because we are still struggling to accept and experience the approval of God. The reason that people are struggling and, and desiring to find the approval of people from the opposite sex through promiscuity is because they are not resting and trusting in the approval that we have from God. The reason that we are tempted to lie and cover up sin is because we are still trying to find our approval in the world, still trying to approve of ourselves even when we already have all the approval we will ever need in God. The reason people are tempted into shady business decisions is to find the approval through either prosperity and finances or to get the approval of their boss, their employers, but they already have all the approval in Christ we will ever need. The reason we still long for the approval of the world is because even as Christians, even knowing all of these things to be true, even having familiarity with the approval of God, we are still not putting our faith in that and trusting in that and believing that God's approval is real approval. God's acceptance of you is real acceptance it's not some fanciful thought the king of the universe the creator the maker of heaven and earth has looked at you and because of your faith in Jesus says this is my beloved son my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased God doesn't just say "Eh, I'll take you he says I delight in you I am pleased in you. As we read in our call to worship, Zephaniah 3, that he exalts over you with loud singing. Think of a father in his joy singing over his children. That is the approval that you have in God through Christ. Can, can I get amens? You're allowed to talk to me in this time. You have all the approval that you will ever need in Jesus. Whose approval do you need? When you have the approval of the one who knows you fully and loves you perfectly, the things that we try to hide from the people in our lives so that they don't disapprove of us, God knows and he loves you perfectly. He never stops loving you because of those things. He knows you completely. He knows you better than you know yourself which means all of the ugliness, and he sings over you. You have the approval that you need in him. You don't need to go up and clean up your life in order for him to accept you. If you're here today, and you're wondering whether or not you will be accepted by God, if you're wondering whether or not you will be accepted by the church, if you are wondering whether or not you will be accepted in this community, and you're thinking, oh, you know what? Gosh, I really got to clean this thing up, and then, then I think I'll be accepted. No, you don't have to do a thing. Just trust that his approval is real approval, that his acceptance is real acceptance, that his song over you is true. You just have to believe that in Christ, because of what he has done to forgive you of your sins, you can be approved of by God. If you are here today and you are wondering if this one thing in your life is going to separate you from actually experiencing approval, it will not. And right now I know the enemy is lying to you. He's saying that I don't know you. I don't know you. I'm saying that, I don't know what the sin is. I don't, but Jesus does and his word is true and it's not gonna stop him from accepting you. The length that he was willing to go to bring you into the kingdom, to bring you into his family, to bring you into his home was death on a cross and that applies to you and applies to everyone else in this room. You are no different. Your sin will not separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus if you put your faith in him. His righteousness is your righteousness and your sin is forgiven. Many of us will still hear this and will still respond by trying to earn God's approval. And you can't earn it. It cannot be earned. It is a gift of his grace. It is received by believing it and trusting it. And many will respond by trying to earn his approval and many will respond like Nazareth by rejecting Jesus and they will not experience his power. But those who believe will experience healing. I think it's really funny, this line in the gospel where he says, Jesus could do no mighty work there, except he laid his hands on a few people and healed them. Like in what world is laying your hands on people and healing them not a mighty work? He's contrasting. He's saying, look, they didn't reject him, but there are people who did, who did accept him. And those people received their healing. Wherever you are today, You know, people out there, maybe even people here will walk away and reject this and not experience his healing. But if you put your trust in him, if you put your faith in him, you will experience his power. You will experience his healing. You will experience the power of his approval. What else could we possibly attain by catering to the world's expectations of us? We've got nothing to gain from this world. You don't need the world's approval. You don't need anyone else's approval. If you've put your trust in Jesus today, you have the only approval that matters. And we can be confident in that because Jesus has raised from the dead.